Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. Hello, my co-host from The Room Minute cannot be here today, so I am once again Professor Robert E.G. Black, host of Annihilation Minute, looking at the 2018 science fiction film Annihilation, one minute per episode, one episode per week. I will be your host for Minute 97. Discussing the Pacific War, a student asked of me, Why take so small an island, isolated, far at sea? I told the class what we had done. It jogged my memory. At home I wrote that epic down in verse and poetry. We had to capture Iwo Jima, killing most its men. No other way could it be done, from landing to the end. It's how I answer inquiries, some sixty years tis now. And every time I speak of it, I'm wondered by the how. With 20,000 Japanese, perhaps 2,000 more, the enemy on Iwa was prepared to fight a war. They knew that we were coming, and they dug emplacements well, to make the island fortress be a place of living hell. They tunneled deep beneath the rock in black volcanic sand. The deepest excavation had been made for high command. With no civilians, stubby trees, and weather slightly cold, that five-mile heap of blackened ash was not much to behold. Why'd such an ugly island an attraction for us be? Its military airfields, not just one or two, but three. The 19th day of February barely saw the sun, as warships in support of landing fired every gun. When that barrage had lifted and our planes began to soar, those landing craft with brave marines were rushing to the shore. The enemy artillery responded with a roar. It ripped and tore and shattered us, heads down against the shore. Volcanic ash got soaked with blood. We had no place to hide. So move ahead is what we did, with pain and semper pride. By nightfall we had cut across the shortest neck of land. Two thousand men, our dead and wounded, scattered on the sand. The next three days we fought them, both in front and to the rear. But February 23rd, a welcome sight we had to cheer. Five hundred foot Mount Suribachi, highest ground there'd be was captured and our flag was raised for all Marines to see. It was a most dramatic moment, but did it mean that we had won the total island from the enemy? No, for bitter war continued on the battlefield below, such fierce resistance plaguing us another month to go. About that time, to fill a gap, give landing troops a lift, the 3rd Marine Division came ashore to join the 4th and 5th. And now, with three Marine Divisions lined up to the north, the enemy began to feel our might as we moved forth. With two-thirds of the island left and they entrenched uphill, surrender wasn't in their plan, more blood would have to spill. No matter what we threw at them, resistance was so hard. Each day's advances had to be just measured by the yard. Marines were falling left and right, but we could still give thanks, as battlefield replacements joined our now-depleted ranks. The enemy was losing more as we pursued for days, relentlessly attacking in varieties of ways. We called in air support, so close that we could feel the heat, when flaming napalm dropped ahead of us three hundred feet. We burned them out, we sealed their caves, we fought them hand to hand. On March the 4th, a big B-29 came in to land. In five months, some two thousand more such rescues would be made, each ten-man crew of army flyers grateful to be saved. The rate that men on Iwa fell was one for every minute. Presented graphically, there's yet another way to put it. When seven men would fall, t'was like a seven-minute scene. Our dead was ours, three dead were theirs, three wounded were marine. In general, fighting took four weeks, 
some units more like five. Yes, we survivors boarding ship, thank God, to be alive. The only victory where we had total losses more than they, all casualties by fallen thousands unbelievable to say. They're dead in thousands, twenty-one, and ours six thousand not alive. The total of our dead and wounded in the thousands, twenty-five. It was our only victory where we had losses more than they, all casualties by fallen thousands unbelievable to say. They're dead in thousands, twenty-one, and ours six thousand not alive. The total of our dead and wounded in the thousands, twenty-five. We men of Iwo reminisce some sixty years tis now of lost marines. No tougher fight. We know the why, the how. Frank V. Gardner, Iwo Jima, Why and How Al has John Novak at his desk at the Corn Belt Bank. Novak wants a loan to start a farm. John Novak sat and held his hat upon his knee. His plain green eyes looked solemn into Al's. And when John Novak spoke, his voice was like a cricket song. I've got a little nursery. I guess you know it. Out where 52nd Street runs blind, right north of Blackhawk Boulevard, the Novak Nursery, we call it. My pop, he used to have the place. I helped him there, and when I went to war, my papa died while I was in the South Pacific. I guess you don't remember. Years ago, we used to sell you lilacs, sir. My pop and I, we set them out for you. Novak just told Al that he was a CB, United States Naval Construction Battalion. Al, where'd you operate? Novak. All over the Pacific, Pacific, one island after another. another. Al, what'd you do, mostly? Novak, go in before the landings, clear the mines and underwater obstructions. And when they'd taken enough ground for an airstrip, we'd build it. The picture Novak reconstructed of himself, the flowers that he grew, the life that he distilled, from earth and awful muck and guano, lime, the war he'd seen, which had contributed such talent to the soil and other places, all these things he told. His flat, strong hands, so cleanly brown. Impassive, new black shoes that squeaked. And thick and fuzzy socks you'd see, because he'd pull his trousers high to save the creases at his knees. Al, fairly interesting work, eh? A day in the life of a CB at NSA Suda Bay, Greece. Joel Diller, Defense Visual Information Distribution Service, 4th November 2019. Quote, Equipment Operator Constructionman Brandon Sneed, a first-term sailor, became a CB with the goal of becoming a crane operator in the future. While opportunities in that field are not available at a duty station such as NSA Suda Bay, for right now he enjoys operating the various types of equipment. The work I do really just depends on the day, said Sneed. Sometimes we have to go out and use the jackhammer, or use a backhoe, or dig a trench. Sometimes we have to run the dump truck to bring in backfill to different places. Sneed said he also operates a forklift and helps transiting units move their equipment from the airfield on the Hellenic Air Force's 115th Combat Wing base down to the port at the Marathi NATO Pier Facility. While his time so far at NSA Suda Bay has been a cool experience, he is looking forward to branching out in his career once he is assigned to a construction battalion. End quote. Earl McClung, former Chief Petty Officer, U.S. Navy, describing his experience as a CB on Cora, 15th May 2018. Quote, I have been a CB for over two decades now. It is unlike any other job in the Navy because, other than a few times you may be unloading a ship, you will never serve on one. CB is not a rating. There are seven different rates in the CBs. Construction electrician, construction mechanic, builder, utilities man, equipment operator, steel worker, and engineering aide. Each rate had a different job with different skill sets. 
All Seabees are trained in defensive tactics by our Marine Corps advisors. Unlike most other personnel in the Navy, you will do field exercises that simulate battlefield conditions. You will train and be proficient with both individual and crew-served weapons, such as the M16A3, M4, M2, HBMG, M240E, and MK19. You will throw grenades and become familiar with the reason the M18A1 Claymore is labeled Front Toward Enemy. You will learn to use field communication gear and how to set up defensive wire and barriers. You will be told to dig fighting positions with your E-tool by a white hat propped up against a backhoe. When deployed, you may be under the command of the Marine Corps, Army, Air Force, or even a foreign service, but it is unlikely that you will work directly for the Navy. We are a breed apart, sailors that never sail. We don't even use a lot of the Navy jargon. We feel more kinship to the Marines than to fleet sailors. Back in the days of Woodland CUU, we rolled our sleeves like the Marines, admittedly not as tight or smooth, and our eight-point covers were blocked the same. You will feel frustration and anxiety like other jobs in the Navy, and there will be days of sheer joy and elation. Hopefully, you will be assigned to a battalion that is proficient and has a chief's mess that takes care of its people. If your junior officers listen to the chiefs and heed their advice, you will love your job. End quote. Novak. No, no it got, got monotonous. monotonous. Those, Those islands, islands all look alike. Tilly with Jima. That was different. So far this minute, we've had Novak facing camera and Al sideways, his head turned away from us, facing Novak. Now, Al looks down at the desk, remembering his own experience at Iwo Jima, we can assume. In Cantor's novel, Al has served in Europe. The hasty draft in 42. In 1942, the nation fumbled in a dismal doubt. Selective service boards were all confused. And in Boone City, they called pampered men like Al, the well-dressed golfers who had desks and banks, and scotch and lockers at the Black Hawk Club, so smugly tailored in their small-town way, they'd be a joke as soldiers. Stevenson was 40, married, with two children. He tried for OCS and had no luck, but when they started jerking men past 38, he found himself in Africa, a PFC, and proud as hell the day he got another stripe. The mortars missed him close, in Rhineland rain. The bullets missed him other times. The shells and booby traps and mines had finished Paskowitz and Sloan and Max and Hancock Rosenberg and 27 more from his platoon. But this was it. But at his speech at the club later in the film, he will mention being at Okinawa. For instance, one day in Okinawa, the major says, You see that hill? Yes, sir, I see it. All right, he said. You and your platoon will attack said hill and take it. Now, in the bank. Al, so I've heard. A beat, as Al reads a form from the stack left by his secretary. I see you have quite a family, a wife, and four children. Novak is already a smiling man, but his smile gets even bigger now. Novak, yes, there'd have been more if I hadn't been away three years. Al glances at Novak, laughs briefly. He talked of tropic verdure, trees. John Novak thought in terms of growing things. The chlorophyll of this green world, he had it in his eyes. A pigmentation of the lushest leaves. He talked of grass. They took a strip one time. How grass grows so rapidly, he said, in lanes like that. He couldn't quite get over it. They took a strip. The place was pocked and pounded by the guns of ships. Before they went ashore, he didn't recapitulate each detail. How they'd snaked across the hummocks, inch by inch. He didn't tell about the heat, combusted from their angry pipes, and sending little dark half-naked men and squealing, chatting mirth of greasy flame to curl and kick, to try to throw their hand grenades and try to bite until the ash of their own burning made them stiff. But still Al knew just what the gyrenes did 
They took the strip. They painted every yard with frightened sweat, with dying fat that emptied from their bodies when the bullets sighed and struck. They took the strip. The blaze burned wide and fried the weeds and zeros into black to dry and smoldered emptiness. The place, John Novak said, was empty, hard and hot as any concrete floor. That afternoon, while he patrolled along the edge, and while the tanks still banged and coughed across the beach, and while the landing barges splashed against the shore, and people emptied out in hot and tired tonnage, he said that he patrolled the strip, with cinders crunching underneath his feet. It never looked like anything would grow again. Then someone killed a Japanese soldier, a sniper in the torn and plastered palms beyond. The man came charging, wounded, dripping blood and making strange and bird-like cries. John Novak said one of our fellows shot a man. He didn't say that it was he, but Stevenson might know. The gargoyle sprang a hundred yards or so, until collapsing limp and weak he died, a toy tan mound amid the dust and embers. Thus the miracle began. We saw him, turned him over, looked at him, and he was dead. We didn't bother for a while. There was an awful lot of them around, and a lot of our guys dead. The medics gathered up our own. We let the others lie. We had a lot to do right then. That night it rained like hell. And Novak walked beside his private little gargoyle. The sun the second day came cooking down. Rain hammered hard once more against the blackened oily sod. The next time Novak looked, he said, he saw a fuzz of green. Examining his gargoyle again, he saw the outstretched, swollen hand, and there was weedy richness shown between the fingers. Sun and rain, the hour's chemistry, the wonder of the heat and wet. John Novak went and looked, and this was grass and growing tall, extending wide and emerald between the swollen fingers, where the flesh was still too raw for certain worms to feed, and so the pullulating green with birds to bugle mystery in jungle wet around. You won't believe it, Mr. Stevenson. In four more days that grass was high enough to cover up the man. It blew and blew. You couldn't see him laying there. You won't believe it. Still, I can't believe it. That grass, it just exploded. Vines and tendrils tangled up, and pretty soon the flowers too. That's how it grows down there. That's what the vegetation's like. It's hard to make yourself believe it, even when you see. Al, now, now you, you want to buy a farm. Novak. Yes, yep, sir. Al doesn't correct him for calling him sir, but he does look at him. Novak leans an arm on the desk. Got, Got my eye on, on a fine piece of property. property. Forty, 40 acres, acres out near Anton corners. corners. Al, what, what about collateral? Beat. Novak. Collateral, what's, what's that? that? Al, security, security for your loan. What, what can you put up in the way of property? property? Have you any stocks or bonds, real estate, valuables of any kind? Novak. No, no Mr. Mr. Stevenson. Stevenson. You see... And that's where we leave Al Stevenson and John Novak. Trained for work they no longer have to do, and stuck for collateral where there is none. Thank you for listening. I have been Professor Robert E. G. Black. Among my various shows, you can find me as the host of Annihilation Minute, taking an in-depth look at the Alex Garland-written and directed science fiction film Annihilation, with scientific research, behind-the-scenes details, notes from the novel and other works, including Hadestown and The Odyssey. You can find Annihilation Minute on all the obvious podcatchers and on social media. Or you can go to lemmingdrops.com for links to that show and all my other shows, my guest spots, my Groundhog Day Project blog, and more. You can find the Best Minutes podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or at the main site, thebestminutes.com. 
or follow the show on social media at Butch's Place, the Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe on Facebook and on Twitter at The Best Minutes. Please join me here next time on The Best Minutes Podcast. Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.